0: Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. We are continuing right along in the series we kicked off last week, where we're just working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And by way of recap, the the Sermon on the Mount is a collection of Jesus' most famous teachings. And so we might have this picture in our mind that Jesus goes up on the mountain and gives like this amazing sermon, and maybe that happened, but more likely, this is a collection of Jesus' greatest hits. you guys remember that Now That's What I Call Music CD, right? Or if you grew up in a Christian house household and you weren't allowed to listen to secular music, it was, wow, that's what I call worship. Anybody remember those CDs? There's a few of us trauma bond, right? Um, So this is like a collection of Jesus' most famous teachings. So if you want to know, boil Jesus' teaching down to one simple thing, it's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Because to be a Jesus follower, to be a Christian doesn't just mean we pray a prayer so we can go to heaven when we die. It doesn't mean I'm going to start voting a certain way or I got to start to live a good moral life. It's I'm actually going to do the things that Jesus teaches, which is why it's so important for us to understand what is he teaching so we can begin to apply it to our lives. Now, today is really part two from last week, so if you missed last week, you can go back and, and catch up on that on your own time. I can't go recap what we talked about last week, but this is really part two, and a couple things I want to make clear. First, whether you've been in church or not, you have probably heard the verses we're going to look at today at some point, so my goal is not to give you something brand new and earth-shattering that you've never heard before. Really, my whole goal this morning is I just want to give some context, so maybe Maybe we can understand the full weight of what Jesus is saying in these verses. So what I'm going to do is I want to read the verses, then I want to back up and give us some context, and then we'll move on to application and questions. Sound good? All right, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven." So this is the famous salt and light passage. Jesus says, you are salt of the earth. Probably a better translation would be, you are salt of the land. We're going to see why in just a moment. But you're salt of the land. You're the light of the world you've probably heard this passage a million times. In fact, I don't know your church background growing up. We would have, uh, usually in the summer, there'd be one Sunday we would call Youth Sunday. And that was when the students, grades six through 12, they did everything. They led worship, they did the teaching, they were the ushers, everything. And inevitably, the sermon every year, every student always taught on salt and light. It's a very famous passage. And so maybe you've heard some things before about what the salt and the light mean. Um, And I think some of those are true. But I actually think that oftentimes our understanding is so limited to what Jesus is saying. So, so first let's think about who he's actually addressing. He says, you are salt of the land and light of the world. Who is the you? Now, when Jesus uses this word, he's not talking about individual. He's not saying you and you and you. It's actually the word he uses is plural. Now we live in the South, so we actually happen to have the plural form of you. What is it? Y'all, okay, so it's Jesus, if he was here today, he would say, y'all are the salt of the land and the light of the world. Now, who is the y'all? Who is he speaking to? If you remember from last week, at the end of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had been going around and healing sicknesses and diseases, casting out demons. These were the people who formed the crowd that were listening to him. So these are kind of the outcasts, the people pushed to the margins of society. These are the people who were chronically unclean, so they were not allowed to worship. Not only that, but other people wouldn't want to be around them because their uncleanliness was viewed as contagious. So these were people kind of pushed out of society, pushed away from from God. These are people who were poor because they couldn't work in the marketplace. Remember, those are the people that Jesus looks at and says, "God's favor is on you. Blessed are you. God's favor is on you because you're poor in spirit. God's favor is on you because you're meek and humble because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. God's favor is on you when you're persecuted because of me. And it's those same people. He said, and and y'all are the salt of the land and the light of the world. And notice he says you are this not hey if you really follow me then you can be this or you should be this he says you already are salt and light so what does it mean to be salt and light uh, maybe you've heard before you know salt is is very important in this culture it was used to preserve things they didn't have a fridge to keep their meat in so you would use salt to preserve and and maybe that's what jesus means here or maybe you've heard you know salt is used for flavoring and so these are people who bring flavor out in the world and and that, that could be true as well. In fact, if you I, I give a lot of uh, theological book recommendations. If you want one on cooking, that's fantastic. Salt, fat, acid, heat. It's a fantastic book. It talks about those are the four pillars. If you're cooking, like, I don't know how you are. Like, I love these. My Instagram is like curated in a very specific way. I have like sports stuff. I have like church stuff. I have a lot of food stuff on there too. And I love they'll bring a, like a McDonald's happy meal to like a fine dining chef and say, well, you make this into a fine dining meal. And they do it and I'm like, how do you do that without a recipe? It's because they know like salt, fat, acid, and heat are the four levers that you use when you're cooking and you can adjust those based on what you wanna create. They talk about how salt is the foundation for flavor and maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. Like salt was very valuable in that day. In fact, sometimes Roman soldiers were paid with salt. That's why we have that phrase, that person's really worth their salt. And maybe that's what Jesus has in mind, but remember Jesus is speaking to these people who are outcasts These people who are Jewish, who I believe would have understood salt and light in terms of what the Old Testament talks about, salt and light. So what I want to do real quick to to make my case here this morning is give you five quick stories from the Old Testament. And I know some of you are nervous because I said five and I said quick and you don't believe me. But I promise we'll get through them quickly because I think they're all going to point us to understanding what salt and light actually mean. So first story from Genesis chapter 1, when God's creating the world, he's taking all of the things that are in chaos and disorder and bringing it back into order. And as part of this act of creation, he carves out a garden in a place called Eden. And this garden was probably best described as heaven on earth. Everything is the way God wants it to be. It's a teeming with life. There's an abundance of resources, like anything you could ever possibly think or imagine, it's there. It is heaven on earth. And it's here that God puts Adam. And Eve, and Genesis 1 says they are made in His image. Which, if you've been at Bridgepoint, you know it doesn't mean they looked like God. They were to act like Him. So, what does it mean? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them be fruitful multiply fill the earth and subdue it rule the fish of the sea the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth so after God makes them in his image he says I want you to be fruitful and multiply I want you to fill the earth go out and subdue it everything that's in disorder bring it into order and I want you to rule over everything. So so part of this idea of being an image meant that Adam and Eve were going to be rulers in the world, but not rulers who take creation and exploit it for their own benefit, but people who rule the way God wants them to, right? Like anybody in charge of anything, like if you're the president of a company, a good president doesn't just lead that company so they get all the benefit, so the employees are flourishing, and the shareholders make money, and the customers are happy, right? They want to rule for the flourishing of everyone. A president, we don't want a president elected just so that he or she can... Get the benefit themselves, but that they would rule in such a way that the whole nation flourishes. And in the same way, Adam and Eve were to rule in a way that the whole world would flourish. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, God fleshes this out even more. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Now, that phrase, to work it and watch over it, is exclusively used in the Bible to refer to the role of priests in the temple. So they are to act as, as priests. And what do priests do? They help God's people maintain relationship with him. So to be made in the image of God, that they were supposed to be rulers and priests. So kings and queens and priests, that's what they were designed to do. That's story number one. Of course, Adam and Eve fail in this task. They don't rule on God's behalf. They want to rule on their behalf. And so the next several chapters just details that humanity left to its own devices just goes from bad to worse. Story number two picks up in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to a man named Abram. Let's look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Everybody say nation. Nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in Genesis 12, God says, I still have a plan to rescue, restore, and redeem this world. And I'm going to do it through people. He says, Abram, if you trust in me, follow me, leave everything behind, I'm going to make your descendants a great nation. Your descendants will become this mighty kingdom. Not only that, but I'm going to give them this land of abundance, just like Adam and Eve had, and I'm going to bless them. And then through them, who's going to be blessed? The whole world will be blessed through your descendants. Now that's story number two. Uh, The rest of the book of Genesis details how Abram or Abraham has lots of descendants. They, They become so numerous, in fact, that at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, is threatened by them. And so he actually enslaves them. And so God sends a savior named Moses to deliver God's people out of slavery into freedom. And one of the first things he does is he leads them to this mountain called Sinai, where God enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And it's detailed in something called the Ten Commandments. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments. Really what the Ten Commandments are is they are a summary document of all the other over 600 commandments that God gave. And oftentimes this is referred to as the law. And we approach it from a Western, a modern Western mindset where we think of law and legality. These are rules. And if you break the rules, then there are consequences. But that's more of contract language, right? Like we enter into contracts all the time. You have a contract with your employer. And that contract is only valid until somebody decides they don't want it to be valid anymore. You have a contract to buy your house, which is good until you pay off your debt, you sell the house or the bank takes it back, right? Like we have contracts, have a beginning and an end, but that's not what this covenant was. A covenant is more like a relationship and we're going to dive into that even more next week. But the closest thing we have to a covenant in our modern day would be a marriage relationship. In a marriage relationship, when you stand before people, you take vows. And vows are really, this is my command. This is what I'm doing to make sure this marriage works, right? To have and to hold, to love and to cherish through rich or poor, sickness and health, better or worse, until death do us part. And we're taking those vows. And so when you read these commands, like, like don't murder people, don't steal, don't worship other gods. Some of the lesser known commands, like every few years, let your slaves go free. Forgive all debt, return land back to its original owner. Uh, commands like, don't have a king for yourself, but let God rule over you. Don't build up a massive military, but trust God to protect you. Don't store up a lot of wealth, but trust God to provide you. All of that, these are wedding vows, relationship commitments. So we have to stop thinking that, okay, the Jewish people thought if they broke these, then 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 God's done with them, because that, that's not the case. And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand But how many of us at some point in our marriage have broken our vows, whether in big ways or small ways? I'm not even talking about things like infidelity. When you promise to love and to cherish your spouse, are you telling me every moment of every day you have loved and cherished your spouse the way you were supposed to? Maybe I'm the only one, but I know I have failed in that. There's been times when I have prioritized my wants, my desires over my spouse. Now, when that happens, does a marriage automatically end? No, there are some times that there can be a transgression that's so egregious that the, the marriage can't move forward. But the vast majority of time we break those vows, what do we do? We seek reconciliation. We try to restore and fix the relationship. And God knows that his people will fail To keep their vows. And so he has this whole system where they can restore and reconcile their relationship. That's what all the whole Old Testament um, descriptions of sacrifice, it's all about. How do we make amends for the way that we have broken our marriage vows to God? If you have questions about that, you know, feel free to text those in. Join the club. I don't have answers to everything, I have some thoughts. But all throughout the book of Leviticus, even Numbers, it's describing these different sacrifices. There's a couple verses I want to point out in particular that show up a handful of times throughout the New Testament. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. God's talking about a, a certain offering called a grain offering. He says, you are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit your grain offering, the salt of the covenant, with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, he continues. It says I give to you and to your sons and daughters all the holy contributions that the Israelites present to the Lord as a permanent statute. It is a permanent covenant of salt before the Lord for you as well as your offspring. You even look in 2 Chronicles, it talks about how God has made a covenant of salt with David and is going to be faithful to that. So salt was seen as a crucial part of this covenant of these sacrifices to the point that's referred to as the covenant of salt. Now, why salt? Why the emphasis on it? What what, uh, Jewish rabbis and, and theologians have suggested is that it's because salt is something that is eternal. Like salt in its purest form, NACL, potassium chloride, like without any impurities, salt does not expire. It is salty forever. Now, if impurities are mixed in, so many of us in our homes, we have iodized salt that has an impurity mixed in or Himalayan salt, you know, that pink salt everybody likes that has some impurities mixed in, gives it certain flavors. Anything with impurities, it has an expiration date, but pure salt never loses its saltiness. And so the rabbis and theologians have said that that salt was an integral part because it represented the fact that God will be eternally faithful to his covenant and to his people. And he is calling them to be eternally faithful. Faithful to him as well. So, who takes care of the salt of the covenant? It's the priests, right? They're the ones who facilitate this, making sure that God's people are in relationship with him. That's the third story. Now, As we travel throughout the Old Testament, we see that Israel becomes a mighty nation, and they are fruitful, and they multiply, and God blesses them. But once they're being blessed, once they have wealth, once they they have something to lose, what happens? You start to be protective over that, right? Right. Like, like this happens to everybody. I remember when I first got married, I thought if I could make twenty-five thousand dollars a year, I'd be the richest person in the world, and I would have all my needs met. I remember the first job when I made twenty-six thousand. I was like, if I could just make thirty. I was like, if I could just make forty. Like, we always think if I can just get a little more, we don't. All, we're never at a point where we think this is enough. I'm satisfied. That's not our natural inclination. And even for the the Jewish people, as they're being blessed, all of a sudden they say, well. I know we're supposed to give to the poor, but maybe we ought to take some of this wealth and save it for a rainy day. Oh, and, and you know, I, I know we're supposed to welcome in the, the people, the immigrants and people from surrounding nations. But what if they threaten to try to overthrow us? Maybe we just need to keep them out. And all of a sudden, when God's people have something to lose, they're tempted to keep it for themselves. And so God sends a series of prophets and Isaiah mentions this time and time again, reminding them that they weren't blessed to keep it for themselves, but they were blessed so that they would bless other people. In fact, he hits on this theme we're about to talk in Isaiah chapter 9. Matthew quotes that in Matthew chapter 4. But I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 60 verses 2 and 3. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness." This picture that Isaiah paints time and time again is that as God's people live according to God's ways, his glory, his light shines from them, and they become a light to all the other nations a light that attracts people to God. See, in the Jewish faith, they don't have this concept of evangelism or sharing their faith because they're not trying to get people to convert to Judaism. But what they they believed is if we just embody God's commands, we show the world what heaven on earth looks like, they'll be drawn to that and they will begin to worship God in their own ways and express what heaven on earth looks like in their context and their culture. But unfortunately, Israel does not live out this call to be the light of the world. And after centuries, God says, listen, I'm not going to force you to stay in this marriage with me. He removes his protection. And story number five is this. The Israelites are conquered. They're actually taken out of their land, shipped off to other parts of the empire. And so the Old Testament ends with this longing for a day when another savior like Moses would come would rid the land of God's enemies, reestablish his kingdom so that people could be in this covenant relationship with God and be the light of the world. So with all of that in mind, that, that we are to be priests and rulers That we are to be blessed and to bless the nations. That we have a way of keeping the covenant with salt. Uh, We are to be the light of the world and that ultimately Israel failed in that task. Jesus looks at these poor Jewish people, the ones pushed to the margins of society. says, you guys are the salt of the land. Land was a part of the covenant. I think Jesus is saying, listen, you have a vocation he's not giving them a job. He's saying, here is your calling. You are the salt. You are the reminder to God's people of God's covenant. Like you're the ones who, who you have nothing to protect. You've come to the end of yourself. And as we said last week, when you come to the end of yourself, that's only when you can enter into the kingdom of God. Like if you have too much to protect, too much to hold on to, God's kingdom makes no sense. Like if things have worked out pretty well for us in this life, and for most of us it has, then God's upside down kingdom doesn't make any sense because it threatens our way of life. It threatens our comfort and our safety and our security. But Jesus says to these people, you're like the priests who are supposed to remind my people of what it looks like to maintain relationship with me, not tainted by the impurities of the world. Not like the Pharisees and Sadducees who've become comfortable with this uh, alliance they've made with the political powers at play in that day. Not like the, the people who are zealots who want to violently overthrow Rome. But you're the people, because you have nothing to lose, you depend on God. And you're reminding God's people what it looks like to be in relationship with me. You're the salt of the earth. I think it's a good reminder to us as well. That when we come to the end of ourselves, we are the salt of the earth when we're reminding God's people what it looks like to follow him. See, the goal of our faith is not to make the world Christian, it's to make the church Christian. Right, let, let, let's make Christians Christ-like. That's our first and foremost responsibility. And I wonder if for some of us here today, the call for us is to avoid the impurities of the world so that we would live such good lives that the people around us who are following Jesus know what it looks like to follow Jesus because they can look at the example of our life. we need people that we can point to and say, they're the salt of the land. They show us what it looks like to follow Jesus. He also says you're the light of the world. So on one hand, there's this call that, that as we follow Jesus, we're going to show other Christians what that looks like. But then also as we embody this, we become a light to the rest of the world. Then they're attracted to what it looks like to follow Jesus. like They're going to be drawn to Jesus like a moth to a flame. Now, with both of those callings, right a calling to be an example for other Christians and an example to the world of what heaven on earth looks like, there comes with that a warning. It's with the salt It says, what, what happens if salt loses its saltiness? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out. In Jesus' culture, when salt was mixed with those impurities and when it expired, it would be thrown on the ground as gravel. And I think Jesus would remind us, what are the impurities that maybe we have mixed into our own lives? Are we wrestling with things like consumerism, materialism, success, comfort, our own agenda, our own priorities, our own goals and hopes and dreams and ambitions, all of those become things that make us lose our saltiness. And the call is to avoid the impurities of the world. Like If you read through the Old Testament or you even read some of the works from the early church, like the first followers of Jesus, the people who were really pursuing God, they like had this aggressive approach to removing impurities of their life. Now, we may never be able to fully do that in this life, but we have to pursue it. We can't just accept the fact that we'll just be like the rest of the world because there will be this throwing out. This is language Jesus uses to talk about judgment. And again, I don't think that what Jesus is saying is, listen, if there's impurities in your life, then then you're getting sent to hell. I don't think that's the kind of judgment he's talking about. But you will limit God's ability to use you based on the impurities that are present in your life. I think about church leaders sometimes. Like like there are times where every church leader will fail you. There's, I'm going to fail you at some point. I will say something that I shouldn't say, or like I communicate for a living. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly good at it, which means I can be fairly like bad with it. Like I know words to say to hurt people. Sometimes they come out before I even think because I'm still wrestling with my, my own fallen nature. And so there, there are times we fall and there's times where we can have reconciliation But there can be boundaries that church leaders transgress that I don't think you come back from that. Like if if I were to commit sexual abuse, like I I don't get to come back and, and lead God's people in that way because that wouldn't be safe for God's people. That wouldn't be safe for me. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't love pastors who fall and make mistakes, but it does mean there's gonna be a limit now, a cap on the capacity I can use you because you've allowed the impurities of the world to enter in. Now, you may not stand on a stage in front of people and preach a sermon, but as long as there's impurities, you might be wondering, why hasn't God used me? Why haven't I seen him showing up? And could it be that God can't position you where he wants because you've allowed impurities to take root in your heart? And maybe it starts with asking God to remove these impurities, but then for us to have a life where we actually pursue holiness and righteousness. And he says, you are the light of the world. And he flushes out even more. He makes two different statements. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, in um, Jesus' day, if you actually were to go back several centuries, the way they would build cities is they would look for strategic locations. Usually they were things like water is going to be present here, or it's going to be on a highway for commerce, or it's a place that can be easily defended. And so they would go in and they would build cities. They would fortify them with walls. They would actually push dirt up against the walls to add some extra fortification. And for the most part, cities would go years on end with no incidents. But every once in a while, an army or a king would come through and would lay siege to these towns. And on rare occasions, they might leave an occupying army behind, but usually what they would do is they would go in, they would burn a city to the ground, and move on to the next one. And when that would happen, though those cities would lay dormant for many years, but again, the, the number of places that match all the things you need for a thriving city, they're not everywhere. There's a limited number of those. So after a few years, people would come to resettle those cities. But instead of trying to move all the rubble out, they would actually just fill them in with dirt and build on top of that until that one's destroyed. And then that one gets filled in. So you build them up, and these cities actually become known as TELs, T-E-Ls. We have a picture of a tell here, I think. Boom. So you can see this is a city built on a city built on a city. So when you see like Tel Aviv, this is a city that's been built on a city that's been built on a city. And so you could actually see these cities from miles away. And actually, when they would build the cities, the the wealthiest people would be the ones who would build their houses in the middle. And then they would build these walls all around that were known as uh, casemates, which essentially was like uh, multifamily housing, like apartments. So the middle class people would live in these like apartment units in the wall surrounding the town. And interestingly enough, what would happen when the city was under siege, people would move out, they would fill these homes with rocks and sand, so it increases the thickness of a wall from 10 feet up to 25 feet now where does that leave the people who are living in poverty well they usually lived outside the city walls and so the city gates became a place where they would enter in every morning and it became a place of of commerce people would do business judges would issue rulings in the city gates it also became a place where they would take care of the poor who are a part of the city Now imagine you're a weary traveler and you've been wandering through the land and nighttime comes and what are you going to see on top of that hill? You're gonna see the city with all its lights lit up and you're gonna think, that's a safe haven. That's a place for hospitality. That's a place where I can take rest, where I can be cared for, where people will attend to my needs and I can recover so I can continue on my journey. So these cities, these city gates became a place of hope for the poor, the wandering, those who are in need of hospitality. They became a place of healing and hope and refuge. And I love that Jesus uses that metaphor to say, listen, When you start to live according to God's commands, you become a city on a hill, a place of hope and hospitality and rest and healing for the wandering and the wounded in the world. And by the way, that can be a scary thing because if we as a church start to become the light of the world, who does God send to our church? Is it the people who have their life together? Is it the people who are comfortable sitting inside the city walls? No, it's those who are wounded, who are hurting, who have junk, who are in need of healing. And by the way, I think that's why he follows it up with, and no one lights a lamp and then covers it up. Because I think our tendency sometimes is, okay, but, but that means life will be messy. That means I will be inconvenienced. That will require me to be uncomfortable. And so what we want to do is, yes, we want to be the light of the world, See, this isn't just a Christmas illustration, by the way. We want to be the light of the world. But then as we start to attract people to us, we get uncomfortable. What do we want to do? We want to set up walls. We want to protect our light, right? Like we don't want our light to get tarnished. We don't want people to make us uncomfortable. And you can do that for a time. You can erect walls and barriers, and you can keep people out. But the more you cover it up, what happens to the light? It goes out. We cannot be the light to the world if we are keeping people out. It only works when we welcome people in. And Jesus says, let your good works shine before men so that other people would see God and glorify him. Which is interesting because in a couple weeks in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, don't let your good works shine before men. So Jesus, what do you mean? And spoiler alert for a few weeks. Jesus is saying, listen, if you do your good works so that other people glorify you, that you're the one getting attention, then that's your reward. Instead, we ought to live life doing good works so that God gets the attention. Before I was a pastor, I worked in lighting sales, which sounds a lot cooler than it is, and it doesn't sound that cool to begin with. Uh, I sold light bulbs to businesses. And so when I walk into a place, I'm looking up, and, and listen, I can tell you this. Nobody pays attention to the lighting until something goes wrong, right? Like a light bulb starts flashing, and everybody looks up. That's bad. The light bulb is not what wants the attention. The light bulb exists so that everyone in the room can see, so that something else gets the attention. And if we want our good works to be all about us, like if we want to go on our mission trip and post on Instagram all the good things so people look at us, that's your reward. Like If we want to post a, a black square on Instagram so that other people, like we can virtue signal that we're a part of this movement, then, then that's your reward. But when you do good works each and every day, when you're caring for the poor every day of your life, when you're working for racial justice every day of your life, then what other people are going to see is not you. They're going to say, "Man, this person is glorifying God. That's what it looks like to be the light of the world." Now, I have a little bit of time for Q and A, so I, no, we'll go ahead and throw a text in question. All right. God promised to greatly bless Abraham and his descendants. Why would He also promise to curse those who would curse the descendants of Abraham? Fantastic question. Um, And here's my best response to that. Um, What God is doing is he's putting a blessing and a curse. Those go together. And in the Old Testament, it's a marker of God's protection over somebody. So in fact, do you remember Cain killed his brother Abel? And God places a mark on him that he would curse people who came against him. It's an ancient way of God saying, I'm going to protect you. So yes, I'm going to bless you, but I'm also going to protect you and curse those who come against you. Great question. Anybody else have a question you want to raise your hand? Remember, quick, clear, and relevant to what we're talking about. Going once, going twice, sold. All right, so I told you today is really not about like, we're going to blow your minds and tell you something you've never heard before. In fact, a lot of times, what all teaching is, is me reminding you of things that you've already known, but maybe have forgotten. And so if you've grown up in church, you're probably familiar with the salt and the light. Really, it's just a reminder for us, number one, to live lives that encourage the other Jesus followers around us. Like we ought to live lives or we can be discipling people around us. And I think too often we think, well, discipling other people or, or helping them become more like Jesus, that, that's for people who are like super mature expert Christians. But the reality is our lives every day, the way that we treat those around us, the way we treat our brothers and sisters, that is an example. That is being salt of the covenant, salt of the land. So maybe it's a reminder to to remove the impurities of our life so God can position us where he's going to use us in those ways. Or maybe today is a reminder for us to be the light of the world. Maybe, and listen, I'll be very honest, like I love to put my walls up. Like, I'm fine helping people as long as it's convenient for me, as long as it's on my own terms. But you ask me to do something or to help when it's going to inconvenience me, I want to put the walls up real quick. But listen, if we're going to be the light of the world, it means inviting the wounded, the broken, those in need of healing into our lives. And it will be messy. In fact, I think the, the church, as, as we become more like Jesus, it only gets messier and messier. And are we willing to be inconvenienced? Maybe you're here today and you already know you've had this opportunity to serve somebody, whether it's a meal train, whether you know your neighbor's going through something, you could help out in a certain way, and you're tempted to say somebody else can do that. Maybe today as we say, Jesus, would you take down the walls I've built up so I can be the light you've called me to be. So we're going to continue with a time of worship like we do every week, a time of communion. Our prayer stations are open up front. You can write a prayer to God and put it in the prayer jar or light a candle because throughout church history, that's represented offering a prayer to God. But in our time of communion with Jesus today, maybe it's Jesus, what are the impurities that I need to remove? Or Jesus, what are the ways I need to serve to be the light you've called me to be? So all across this room, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're thankful. We are thankful that you are that Savior that was promised in the Old Testament. We're thankful that you didn't just come so we could go to heaven when we die, but you came to invite us into a whole new way of living. And Jesus, that's hard, it's difficult, because I know at least for me, I'm comfortable. I have a good life, sometimes an easy life. But I pray that every wall that I've built up you would tear it down brick by brick so it could be the light you've called me to be. Pray for the areas of impurity in my life that I've just become resignated to. Just said, this is just the way I am. Would you you remove those impurities? Would you convict me, shape me, and change me? Because at the end of the day, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, You can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.